0: Well, as we begin each year, we take time to review some essential disciplines and emphasis that we've had at Emmanuel from the beginning. We're going to look at a third area this morning. I hope, as I said two weeks ago, that in a word, this series helps. I hope it helps recalibrate your life to the most important reality of life. That is God and his word. I hope it helps recalibrate you and helps understand some essentials of the Christian life. And I even hope in a lesser sense, but still helpful, I hope it it helps understand matters of faith and practice that we've always had here as a congregation. In a word, I just hope this series helps. And two weeks ago, we began on New Year's Day thinking of our love for the unseen Christ from First Peter one, eight and nine and love for Christ, treasuring him above all else, treasuring him supremely is the mark of every true Christian, because without love for Christ. We may have the name of Christian, Thomas Vincent wrote, but holy be without the nature of Christians, because all true Christians treasure Christ supremely for who he is, not finally for what we get from him. The love of Christ, Vincent continues, is infinite without bounds or limit. His love is superlative without comparison, transcendent beyond comprehension. The love of Christ is immutable without change and eternal without termination and without end. It is true that we love father and mother as the word of God requires it. We love husband and wife as God's word commands that, especially of husbands as Christ loved the church. We also love sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and friends. We're even commanded to love our enemy. All this is true. Yet all of those loves must be subordinate to and lesser than our love for Christ. For Jesus says, our loving Savior says in Matthew ten thirty-seven, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. True Christians love the unseen Christ supremely. They treasure him above all else and the center of every true believer in every true church is the redeeming love of Christ seen at the cross, spoken to us, seen again as his word. For if you love me, you keep my commandments. Last week, we look at the priority of God's word and one particular aspect of our congregational life, that God's word governs our worship. Deuteronomy 12 and one Timothy three. We're to worship daily, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And corporately, we worship daily in all of life. And our worship intensifies and builds as we gather to do something on the Lord's day. We've not been doing all week. Worshiping together, corporately, as a body. And Christ, if you noticed, he promises a peculiar presence, a special presence to his people when they gather together for worship. That's not there when you're by yourself. We're to worship according to the scripture and nothing else. So we prioritized last week the mandated elements of worship, like reading the word and praying the word and singing the word. Beloved, congregational singing is just as much as a command as preaching of the word is a command. So historically at Emmanuel, we focus on keeping the word, the elements mandated in the word because God's word governs our worship. And we talked last week that all the other aspects of our gathered worship are categorized and we can discuss them under headings like forms or aids to worship and the circumstances of worship. The forms of worship refer to what form these mandated commands might take, like instruments aiding singing or a printed order of worship or even a program like Sunday school. But forms and aids to worship are not the same as commanded elements of worship. So we're not to insist on what the word does not Command, forms and aids can help carry out the elements and may be used with wisdom, but are not mandated. And then every gathering takes place under certain circumstances. So the circumstances of worship involve the time and location, the chairs and pews and check-in system and temperature of the room and parking lot and coffee station and whatever and so on. The point is that love for the unseen Christ is the center of every true Christian's worship in and as God's gathered people. And God's word governs our worship and our priorities in worship. We must ever be vigilant then not to turn forms and circumstances of worship into those elements of worship, lest we too come under the judgment like Nadab and Abihu and even Uzzah. Christ, his word alone lies at the center of our gathering and his word alone regulates our worship and even our philosophy of ministry. So we say, praise God for his word. Praise God for Jesus, his son. And now on this third day of New Year, I want to speak to you this morning about one of the most important realities of life. That's an audacious thing to say. I want us to think about one of the chief things God is doing in the world. I think we'd agree that whatever God is doing in the world, we should be a part of it. So here's the big question I'm going for. What is God doing in the world? What in the world, to put it colloquially, what in the world is God up to? What's he doing in the world? Here's point number one, where I'm going to give it by an overview and then we'll dig down later deeper. What is God doing in the world? Here is. Here's what I'm going for. So, you know, there's nothing up my sleeve and I'll try to argue for it the rest of this morning from the Bible. What's God doing in the world? He's redeeming people for a purpose. So what's he doing in the world? He's redeeming people for a purpose. How do you know? Part one this morning, let's think of the overarching story of the Bible. How do we know that what God is doing in the world is redeeming people for a purpose? Well, bound up in the history of God redeeming people, that history shows us the purpose of why he redeemed them. The history of redemption shows us the purpose of redemption. So what does the history of God redeeming his people from everywhere show us about his purpose in redeeming his people? Well, here it is. God redeems his people in order that they might worship him and enjoy him especially together. God redeems his people in order that they might worship him and enjoy him especially together. So start with creation. God creates Adam in his own image. But apparently there's something about God's image in Adam that's not complete. So he creates Eve. Adam needs Eve to complete God's image, and Eve needs to help Adam as his helper to complete the image of God. The two of them have children. God commands them to. So this first family and first marriage tells us there's something about God's image that requires a plurality of persons to reflect whether somebody is married or not. Moreover, being created in the image of God means that we're made to be part of something bigger than the individual self. Now, our modern world has so doubled down on the individual's sovereign self that not only can you choose your Spotify list and like and dislike songs to customize your likes even better, we can also choose our gender and irreversibly mutilate the bodies of children whose prefrontal cortex has not even finished forming. But in doubling down on the self, what have we lost? you have lost any sense of transcendent value that your body has meaning, that it was created with purpose. You lose any reason for having a community. You lose hope itself because Jesus said, and seeking to save yourself, you lose yourself. We're created to be part of something bigger than the self from the garden. God, is image is bigger than the self. And you move from the garden to Abraham. And in calling Abraham, God promises to bless all the people of the earth. He's gathering something even bigger, the families of the earth. And then we hear God state explicitly the purpose of redemption in Exodus 3. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you all will worship me in this mountain. Or Exodus 4.23, let my son Israel go that he might worship me. God redeems his people that they might worship him together. And then God gathers all the people to worship him at the tabernacle in the wilderness their whole time, commanding them to gather in a certain place, in a certain way, again and again. They were never permitted to stay back in their own tents and worship God because, after all, God sees my heart and you can worship God anywhere. No, and Deuteronomy 12, it's explicitly said, you may not worship God in this way or in that place. You may only worship me in the way that I command and in the place that I tell you to gather, because where I tell you to gather, I will meet with you and be your God and you will be my people. He commanded them to meet in a certain place to worship him together. And as the story of the New Testament unfolds, Jesus Christ, the son of God, chooses 12 men, 12 disciples. Why 12 men? Because God found the nation of Israel through 12 men upon 12 men, not great men by any stretch. And God doesn't choose anybody because they're good, but because God's gracious. He founded Israel out of his grace. The choosing of the 12 men then represents, in some sense, a reconstituted Israel, a new people of God, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, but also to indicate that we're chosen to be part of something bigger than the individual. And apostles they all scatter and they die early painful deaths why they die early painful deaths and give their blood to start physical in-person gatherings of people similar to those in-person old testament gatherings the history of redemption shows you the purpose of redemption from the garden to abraham From Abraham to David, where God redeemed his people to worship him. From the choosing of twelve and the planting of churches, the New Testament, we finally come to the worship of heaven and Revelation four and five of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Then we come to the heavenly Jerusalem and it's a city, Revelation 21 and 22. And that city has a garden in it. The story of creation, of redemption begins with Adam in a garden and concludes with an innumerable host in a city with a garden there. All this means. Here's an overview of the story of the Bible. All of it means that your Christian life is not about you and your preferences. And it's not finally about our own families as precious as our families are. Who is my brother and sister? Jesus said, you know, your family's outside wanting to see you. Jesus wouldn't leave to spend time with his biological family to make a point. Whoever does my will is my brother and my sister. He's making a new family. It's true that you come to God. You, you must come and repent as an individual. And you personally have to turn from your sin and place your hope. in you personally have to do that. Nobody can do that for you. But having placed your hope in Christ alone at that moment, you are never alone or to be alone. You're redeemed as an individual, but redeemed to be part of other redeemed persons. We're created then we're saved to worship God in a body with a family. Yes, yes, don't forget. You're saved to worship God in all of life. Yes, you must. But we're also called to worship God as a body together. We're rede- we, we, not just you, we are redeemed from the bondage of our sin. We have been baptized into one body and one spirit so that we all might worship him. The gospel creates a new community. And we give God, Psalm 29, 2, give God. God, the glory due his name. We give God the glory due his name by worshiping in all of life. And more specifically, we give him even more glory as we reflect his Trinitarian glory as a gathered people, as we relate to one another in the church. What a blessing. God's glory is so multifaceted and complex. It takes a body to display all of its glory. You can't possibly display God by yourself. You weren't meant to. So the overarching story of the Bible shows what God's doing in the world. What's God doing in the world? He's redeeming people for a purpose that bound up in that history of redemption is the purpose of redemption. That is, he redeems people in order that they might worship him and enjoy him forever, even together as a body. That's the chief thing that God is doing in the world. Now, knowing that gives 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 our lives tremendous value as individuals and as a congregation. You have been made for something. We've all been made with a destiny in mind. You've been made with a destiny in mind. You've been made for the glory of God. You're made for more than yourself. You're made to glorify this, this being, God, and enjoy him. Now, now listen, if you embrace a worldview that says you have to go find purpose in life, if you embrace a worldview, a religion that says you've got to go find it and achieve something, you're going to be lost in the quicksand exploring yourself. An identity that is, is received, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, elect, holy, beloved, an identity that is received is far deeper and higher than one that you go out and achieve. The one makes you proud because you achieved it or deeply despairing because you haven't measured up yet. The other one, if your identity is received, if you've been made for glory rather than going having to go out and achieve glory, that makes you humble because, you know, it's all of grace and it makes you stable when you fail because you're not defined by your successes or your failures. Knowing that you're redeemed for a purpose, for the glory of God helps us work, work from our identity, not towards our identity. And that's the difference between biblical Christianity and every other religious worldview or every other leadership book and every other therapeutic solution that tries to help you be you. What is God doing in the world? He's telling you who you are, who you've been made to be, what he's done for you so that you might be truly male, truly female, a true church. Well, there's a big picture. A brief overview of the Bible, the chief thing God is doing in the world, he's He's redeeming people that they might worship him forever. Now what I want to do, would you turn to Ephesians 1 in your email this week? Ask us to read Ephesians 1 to 3. Now we've been going really high level, 32,000 feet or 35, whatever the safe cruising altitude is at an airplane these days. Now we're going to put our nose into specific texts. Last week, we heard Paul write to Timothy that God cares how we order our life as a local church. One, Timothy three. That church, Timothy was to pastor, we would say revitalized because in our day, unless you give something a name and diagnosis, it's not cool to do it. But he's just a pastor, this church and this church that he was the pastor was this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. It would be interesting for somebody to do a a dissertation on the history of the church at Ephesus. It was not only planted in the book of Acts by the great apostle Paul, not only given rich doctrinal instruction in the book of Ephesians and handed off to solid elders in Acts 20, but at the time this local church in Ephesus now needed a, a pastor, a new pastor to remind them how they should behave as a church from the gospel in chapter one, to prayer and qualified men, male pastors, two and three, to expectations churches have on their pastors, first Timothy four, to caring for widows, first Timothy five, to how you use your money, first Timothy six. Yes, Timothy, tell them how they should order themselves as God's congregation in all of these areas. Because God's word governs and sustains the church. Well, if there's at least one book of the Bible, That should come to your mind when you hear the word church. It is this book of Ephesians written to this church whose journey you can trace even to Revelation, who was lost their first love in Revelation. There's the story arc of this church in the New Testament. But what's God doing in the world? Ephesians is going to tell us. We sang Ephesians 1 earlier to the praise of his glorious grace. Now let's read Ephesians 1. Three to 14. And as we do, I just want you to ask this question. What is God doing in the world? What's God doing in the world? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and this to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we are having redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, a grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Here's his purpose as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in our English Bibles, at least the one that I have, I think there are five sentences there. But this is all one sentence in the original text. Those of you who are into sentence diagramming, go for it. It's one sentence. It's comprehensive in its scope. The sentence starts before the foundation of the world. It's telling you what's happening before the foundation of the world. And when Paul is done with this long run on sentence, he's telling you what's going to happen when you acquire your eternal inheritance. No wonder the sentence is so long. Paul is trying to capture what's happening from before the creation of the world until the ages of the ages. He's telling us. And what are the actions being done? Did you notice the actions being done? Look again in your Bible. I counted about 12, depending on how you diagram the sentence. He, he chose us when? Before you had time to be good or bad. God did not choose you because he looked down the road and thought, they will believe in me, so I'll choose them. That is not how it worked. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in love. He adopted us. He blessed us. He redeems us. He forgives us. And I love verse 7 because it's it's not simply he has redeemed us, but he is right now still saving you from your sin. He's not done with you. He, He lavishes grace on you. Back in the day when I used to love syrup, I mean, I still do love syrup, now much more moderate. You go to IHOP and you know what I love about IHOP? Have all the syrup you want. Try that flavor. Try the strawberry. Try the blueberry. Try the butterscotch. Hey, I'm out of syrup. Bring me some more. God lavishes his grace on us. He lavishes it on us. He's wasteful. He's extravagant. He's over the top. He informs us. We've obtained an inheritance. He sealed us with his spirit. Now, let me ask you this. Who is the main actor in this comprehensive sentence? Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I started with this sentence What in the world is God doing? Because Paul is telling you what God the Father is doing. What he's been doing from before the foundation of the earth and what he'll do after. This is what God the Father is doing. All these are his actions. We're chosen. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He blessed us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He lavishes. He informs. He seals. These are all God the Father's doing. Now, why is God doing it? Well, you noticed, didn't you? verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. This is a three stanza hymn. With the refrain at verse six and a refrain at verse 12 and a refrain at verse 14. And the refrain is the point of everything God is doing. Everything God does is to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his grace. And if you notice more, while God, the father is the main actor, each stanza is focused on a member of the Godhead, concluding with we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, stanza three. So here's a Trinitarian hymn. Telling us what God the Father has been doing and will do for a really, really long time. And why is he doing it? He's doing it for his own glory. He's pursuing and displaying his glory in the universe. And God is so zealous for his glory that he created the world to reflect his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. You remember, maybe, maybe you don't. In our time this summer in Providence, we talked about even black holes. There's a supermassive black hole and the Perseus cluster. And they I don't know what they did. I don't know how they do it. But here's what NASA says that they came up with. They detected a note in the middle of a black hole 250 million light years away from Earth producing a B-flat 57 octaves below middle C. That's a million billion times deeper than the lowest frequency of sound than you can hear. And you know what it's been doing? It's been always there declaring God's glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Our own poets like Barrett Browning says the earth is crammed with heaven or William Blake. You can see a world in a grain of sand and behold heaven and a wildflower. Yes, that's true. And so crucial is God's glory in the makeup of the universe that he wants angels whom you've never seen, at least we don't know it if we've seen an angel. You may have entertained one unawares, the writer of Hebrews says, but an angel in all of its glory who you've never seen, they swirl around the face of the Father in the throne all night and all day and so insistent on God is on his glory. Holy, holy, holy. And what do they say? The whole earth is full of his glory. All that God does in the seen and unseen world is for his own glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? That sounds cool and neat, and I'm supposed to go, yeah. What does it mean that he displays his glory? Well, what is the glory of something? I'm going to try out. Don't hate me, right? What's the glory of the Dallas Cowboys? They're the only team called America's team. The only one. And they're not living up to it, but that's what they're called. Well, what's the glory of Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat? The most morbious baseball player of all time. I checked a list this week. He ranks number two, number two on the all time greatest athletes in, in America. Guess who number one is? You guessed it. Everybody wants to be like Mike. What makes what makes Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan? What is their glory? There's there's no one like them in particular skill that they have. What about the glory of the, the Mariana Trench that, that lies in the Western Pacific near Guam? Its glory is its length and its depth. It's five times longer than the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is a rip in your pants next to the Mariana Trench. It's the longest canyon in the world. But the length of the Mariana Trench does not exhaust its glory. There are 14 mountain peaks on the earth that stand higher than 8,000 meters. They're called 8,000ers. And of the 14 8,000ers, Mount Everest is the standard by which they're all compared. In Nepal, they have a name for Mount Everest. Anybody speak Nepalese? Good. So my pronunciation is as good as yours. All right. The Nepalese name for Mount Everest is Sagarmatha, Sagarmatha. You know what it means? Mount Everest, they call Mount Everest the mother of the universe. It's the biggest 8,000er meter there is. Huh? That's all you got, the Mariana Trench says. Mount Everest sits like a Lego in the bottom of a swimming pool compared to the Mariana Trench you can sit the 20,000 foot Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench in the bottom and still have to go 7,000 more feet before you break the top of the canyon. At more than seven miles below the surface, it's longer than the Grand Canyon, 7,000 feet deeper than Mount Everest is in high. The glory of the Mariana Trench, there's nothing that long and deep anywhere in the world. That's its glory. Glory. So the glory of something is whatever makes it stand out, whatever makes it unique. But but it's not. But something, the glory of something, its uniqueness makes you praise it. Bad example, a counterexample. example, a murderer may be unique and the amount of people that she kills. But you would call that inglorious, not glorious. The glory of something is not only what makes it unique, but what's what makes it its unique praiseworthiness. It's unique that it calls you to praise it. It's uniqueness. The glory of something like Babe Ruth or the Mariana Trends is that it makes you its uniqueness makes you praise it and talk about it. The glory of something, then, is its unique excellence, its unique praiseworthiness. Now, Paul says that in Ephesians, God's acting in such a way in the world that he wants to display his unique praiseworthiness everywhere. Well, can you turn to Ezekiel 1? Can I ask you to do that? Or are you listen? I'm going to Ezekiel 1. Because what I want to do is try to think again about God's glory. In Ezekiel, you have a prophet glimpsing into the worship of heaven in Ezekiel 1. And that august scenery overwhelms Ezekiel so much that all he can do is use simile and metaphor. That what he sees outpaces his, the human language's ability to describe everything. So all he can do is say, I don't know, it was like this, it was like this, it, had to, it was like this, it was like this. Listen as he describes the, the throne in heaven. And it looks this way right now. This is what he saw. Ezekiel 1.26 Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward, what what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal. Like the appearance of fire closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. A brightness like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking from that throne. Do you see Ezekiel? Compares God's glory to something. And to what does he compare it? In the end, he compares it to a rainbow. I saw something that looked like the appearance of a bow. That appeared in the clouds after the day of rain. And that was something like the brightness of God's glory. So God's glory is not an abstract concept. But it's like the manifold beauty of a rainbow. It's beauty that makes that draws your heart out and then makes you want to praise it or fall on your face and wonder. You don't say I don't think many people do this. Hey, a rainbow. People go, look, a rainbow. And you get your camera and you post it somewhere on whatever you have. You say, look, a rainbow. I remember the last time I remember seeing a double rainbow. My mother-in-law was in the hospital on her deathbed. I said my goodbyes, drove down the road. And here's a double Rainbow. And I think God's promise to keep my mother-in-law is, a, you, you, you see, you don't see a rainbow and go, oh, a rainbow. You go, a rainbow. You don't look at God's glory and you go, God's glory. You go, it's like a rainbow. But, 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 but the, the reality is always greater than the symbol. So if God's glory is like a rainbow, how much more spectacularly, prismatically beautiful is the glory of God if it's better than a rainbow? The glory of God is, is a rainbow-like in its rarity and its colors and its uniqueness draws your heart out. Well what makes, if the glory of something is that thing that makes it unique, what is it that makes God unique? Well it's not one thing. It's everything. God is not glorious in one aspect. He's glorious in every aspect. His glory excels the glory of just men made perfect. His glory exceeds the most beautiful angels that have never sinned. If any creature has wisdom, it's but a beam and Christ is the sun, Thomas Vincent says. If anybody has any goodness, it's a drop because Christ is the ocean. Do you see? Do you know what is glorious about God? The unique praiseworthiness of God is God. To whom then will you liken me? He says. Who will you compare me to? There is no one like God in all the earth and heaven above or earth below or beneath. There is no one like him. The glory of God. What makes him uniquely praiseworthy is that he is God. Now, if you want to try. My beauty and glory is like the brightness of a rainbow. It's the rainbow like display of all of my perfections. My beautiful perfections that demand a response. That will make you dance like David or or when most people in the Bible behold the glory of God, they fall on their face like Ezekiel and Job and Thomas and John in Revelation one as a dead man. that's quite a sight in reality. God is displaying the beauty of his glory, a beauty that draws you out, that's actually terrifying and makes you think, I'm going to die. So now you come back to Ephesians. And Paul says, God is wanting to display his unique praiseworthiness. He wants to show this rainbow-like, terrifyingly beautiful outshining of who he is. Well, where is God the Father Doing that by the things he's done, yes, but where are all those things happening in Ephesians 1? If you go back to Ephesians 1 and you skim the first several verses, you will see in verses 3 to 14 a phrase that appears again and again He blessed us in Christ, He chose us in Christ, He accepted you in Christ, He redeemed you in Christ, He united you in Christ. Where is God, the father displaying his glory in Christ like nowhere else? He's the very outshining of his glory to see me. You have seen the father. And what I think is the key to this whole book is verses nine and ten. Because his purpose is a plan for the fullness of time. His God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ. What kind of things? Things in heaven and things on earth. He's uniting all things in Christ. Now go back to the beginning. The world is fractured since Adam and Eve. And you know that's true when you're at the edge of a casket that this world is not how it's supposed to be. Marriages can be fractured. The muffled staccato sound of a a machine gun punctuated by explosions that fills so many news stories. Nature, what Tennyson is telling you, it's red in tooth and claw. Paul is saying the creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be free from its bondage. Can anybody make sense of this? That's the scroll in Revelation. Is there anyone worthy who can take the title deed of creation and make it whole? Is anyone worthy to make this world new again? Can anyone do it? Does anybody have the authority? Who can make all who can put it all back together again? That. Is what Paul is answering right now in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He's telling you that God is uniting all things in Christ. So that one day the lion won't eat the lamb. The lion and the lamb will play together. And one day the kid won't have to be afraid of a snake in the creek. Because the kid and the adder will play together. He will restore the enmity between all every part of creation. He's uniting them in Christ. That's what God's up to in the world. The whole history flows into Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 and out the other side. That's how you should view the world. You know what God is doing? This is the Father's massive overhaul of everything in heaven and earth. He's putting everything back together again. Where? How? In Christ. The rest of Ephesians, Ephesians 4-6 is like a restored photograph of what life was supposed to be like in the garden without the fall as husbands and wives no longer blame each other as husbands lead and wives submit and image bearers no longer kill each other like Cain and Abel and they all walk worthy of their calling in Christ without envy or malice, Ephesians 4. He's making it all new in Christ. So what is God doing in the world? God the Father is... He's pursuing his own glory in Christ like nowhere else. That's what life is about. If you believe that, it'll change the way you pray. It'll change what you pray for. If you understand that life is about God pursuing his glory in Christ, putting it all, it'll change your marriage. It'll change your singleness. It'll change how you go to work. It'll change how you fight sin. Now, what does that have to do with us? Now, I'm not going to ask where. I'm going to ask, How? You tell me how God is going to pursue his glory and put it all back together again in Christ. How is he going to do that? Well, look at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 of Ephesians. These are just good things that we remind ourselves, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, we're told that Christ Jesus himself verse 20, is the cornerstone of the building in whom, in Christ, the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in Christ, you all, as a church, are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a Trinitarian sentence. In Christ, you are being built together As a temple for God by the Spirit. Now, if you wanted to see God's spectacular glory in the Old Testament, where did you go? You went to the tabernacle, and then you went to the temple. And when his glory filled the temple, worshipers could no longer enter because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So according to Ephesians 1 and 2, where do you now go to see that kind of glory on display? You went to the temple, but now Paul is saying. You as the church are the temple of God, you are God's dwelling place. I want to tell you, you don't go to the temple, you go to the church, the very dwelling place of God to see his glory. And if you think we're pushing this just a tad bit, maybe exaggerating for effect. Now look at Ephesians three and Ephesians three that we read together. In our our reading. Paul describes his ministry. And he says in Ephesians 3.8. I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to me. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery. Hidden for the ages. In God who created all things. So that through. The church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Is that how you would display God's glory through the church? Is that how you would display the rainbow-like variety of all of his perfections through the church? And who do you think the audience is for the church? I thought it was about me. It's hot or cold in this place. The chairs are soft. They're hard. I like the songs. It ain't about you. The final audience are unseen principalities and powers in Isaiah 6 that Paul says he created the church to display his glory to Michael and Gabriel. What? Because he always chooses the weak things to confound the wise. You can't say then that I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I I don't really need organized church anymore. The church is how he's displaying his glory, not just to you and to me, but the church is the father's plan to display his unique rainbow like glory to powers in heavenly places. That they might know the manifold wisdom of God. So the church is the visible manifestation of, of Christ to the world. You know where Isaiah 6 happens in part? It happens at the church. There's more glory. Do you believe this? According to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, there is more glory in God's church than there ever was in Solomon's temple. If you came to Mount Sinai and you expected that, Hebrews 11 and 12, how much more now that you've come to Mount Zion? There is more glory in God's people and His church than there ever was in Solomon's temple because now we are in Christ. We, we are the temple. We are God's dwelling place. We are God's visible manifestation of Christ to the world. How holy then must we be? How loving then? Must we be. We are God's display of glory. So what in the world has got up to? He's pursuing his own glory in Christ and he's doing it through the church. You know how long he's doing it. Look as Ephesians three ends. Ephesians three, verse 20. Paul's going to end part one of his letter. Now to him, that is to God who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And he's not talking about getting an A on a test when you thought you were going to get a C, though sometimes God shows grace like that. He's talking about he's doing far more abundantly and putting all things together in Christ. According to the power at work in us, to him, to God, be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, One of the houses that we lived in. uh, My parents had a long mirror over their bathroom and you could open the the, the door going into it. My mom had another mirror here. And as a kid, and I still am fascinated that I could I could stick my head here and I could see a million of Brad's heads going that way into the mirror. And if I look that way, how does it work? It's it. It just you put two mirrors together and it goes on forever. That's what Paul's doing. at the It's into the ages of the ages forever. God is pursuing his glory in Christ through the church forever. Among, you know, I was going through this week some of the documents from our earliest services at Emmanuel. At our dedication service at the Fellowship Hall at Heritage. Ephesians three twenty one, I pulled out the order of worship. There's a, it punctuated the service order and worship. Brian led the music, Laura Laura gave a testimony, Rhett gave a testimony, and at the bottom of that on september seventeenth was Ephesians three twenty one, to him be glory in Christ, in the church, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The whole service was arranged around that theme. And it is and shall be the hope and prayer and mission that we desire to Emmanuel because it's God's desire for every church. What is your vision for the church? I don't care what my vision is for the church. I don't care what your vision is for the church. I care what Christ's vision is for the church. And his vision is Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. His vision is Ephesians 4 and Ephesians that he wants to display his glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What does this mean? Here's my question. If God is pursuing his own glory in Christ through the church forever, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? What are applications? If God is pursuing That kind of spectacular glory in Christ through the church forever. What does that mean for you? You see how this should land in on us. I want to give you three categories. And I know these three categories. I saw somebody write this recently. I know that there may not be agreement in all these points, but I want to stimulate you to think. Someone told me, someone wrote, had disappointed. Here's a Sunday as a pastor. Somebody told me how disappointed they were with something I said and did. Someone else told me how great what I said and did was. I apologized to one, uh, uh, thanked the other, and moved on. This is why if you live by people's praise, you'll die by people's criticism. So I'm just going to move out now, best I know, in humility and say, you know what it means if God's pursuing his glory in Christ to the church forever? It means you attend in person regularly. That's not only an implication of that question, it's a command not to forsake gathering together. And apparently it's always been the habit of people not to gather together, which why he says don't neglect it as the custom of some is. It is a mandated element of worship. It's not an optional form or circumstance of worship. And to quote Deuteronomy 12, we are not worshiping God in the way he commands at the place he commands unless we're gathering for worship. And anything that undermines that physical gathering ought to cause great concern. So here's one example. And understand my loving, I love you even if you don't agree with what I'm going to say. I love you, and I know you love me. That's why, from the beginning, from day one in 2005, Sermon Audio gave the option for us to give live video services of our services. So, in 2005, from day one, we chose not to. It was not a reaction to anything, but a settled conviction in 2005. Not to do anything that might undermine a mandated element, that might undermine a command, or the implications of God pursuing His glory in Christ through the church by being there. I don't know if that's a sign or not, but that came out. It is true. We use live, uh, at t- I just totally ruined that. Um, need a new one anyway. Amen? Or oh me. Um, it is true that for a time, during that exceptional time during COVID, we used video. That was an unusual time. It's a time that we had to do that kind of thing. We looked at it. I know there, I'm not saying this is inherently evil and all churches who do are bad. But even since COVID, it's enabled people to think. Here, here's what's been said. I've not missed one attending service. I've watched everything. Or here's another pastor. The people in my congregation, there's a few who say, like, man, now that it's recorded online, I can watch the service two and a half times faster. Now, whatever legitimate use live video might have, that is a sinful use by a person. And even in situations where it might not be sinful, We've never thought that it's prudent or wise long-term. And if you find that troublesome, like as if we were starting the church, if we were starting the church today and live stream was a big deal for you, then find another group of leaders who, who would see it differently. For us... We think it undermines the nature of the church. It undermines the required element to gather together. It's contrary to the commandment and the word itself. It's against the incarnation of Christ, who was omnipotent and omniscient and could have come in some way, but he came in a body. It goes against your embodied humanity, that you're in flesh, and it goes against the end when we will be with the Lord in person. And if someone can no longer come to service, we'll do what Emmanuel has always done, what you've always excelled in. We showed up in person with believers from this body and sung and prayed with George's mom. Is George here this morning? We sang with with G-Mom and did that. And groups went at the congregation. We met in the home of a man named Jeffrey, having services with them in the hospital around the bed. We took the church to them. This morning, a text went out. Cindy can't, she might not be able to come because her eye is bad. And I said, Becky, maybe we can go get her. And it was so exciting to me that the Alexanders had beat us to the punch and they went and got Cindy. And now Cindy's smiling like a muley and briar. She's so happy to be here this morning. Aren't you, Cindy? Yes. Yeah, just... We We will not, we will not let any shut in or sick member be shut out And the best way to fellowship is in person so long as we can. That's much harder and much more meaningful. Last year, there was a group that went and prayed for Deb Bastoni through the window and read scripture and rehearsed the sermon to her. And if it looks like another exceptional situation should ever arise that that we cannot meet, we'll give due consideration. Why? Because we want to help everyone obey God's command and share in his glory to the church. And if you are ever, COVID or not, well enough to travel and work and get on a plane that's smaller than this building and go to parties and have people in your home, then you're well enough to come to church. Now, I know some of you would struggled, and I want to tell you, is Stephanie Lindstrom here? Stephanie, who is probably the most at-risk person in the body, and she has been the most encouraging, admonishing to us, to elders, and the most gracious in the way that she's done it. Now, I'm feeling really, all of you are fighting to be here. I'm not, I promise. I'm, I talked with a member before and said, I'm going to say some things. I'm not scolding you. I'm not scolding anybody in this room. As a pastor, I want to take last week's message and this week's message and say, what does it mean to pursue God's glory in Christ through the church? What does it mean? What are the implications? And all I'm trying to say is that I got myself, uh-oh, is this, show up. Here's John Stott saying the same thing in 2007. We are not only Christian people, we're church people. We are not only committed to Christ, we're committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the center of eternal purposes of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident in history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For this purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future, it's not just to have save isolated individuals and perpetuate our loneliness, but rather build his church. So that is to call out of the world the people for his own glory. The reason we're committed to the church of God is God is so committed. It's true we might be dissatisfied or even disillusioned, with some aspects of the institutional church, but we're still committed to Christ and the church because he is committed to the church forever. Here's number two. Not just regularly come, but join. I know not everyone, even in our city, agrees on membership, and not everyone agrees in our church or has how we've emphasized membership. Shema's left because they said, I've got frustrated with Brad with the way you emphasize membership all the time. I understand that. But if God is committed to his glory in the church, then joining is one way. We think it's wise and prudent to show God's commitment to the church. Again, John Stott, I'm trying to bring Brother Stott in who's with the Lord to help me out a little bit. Acts 247, the Lord added to their number daily those who have been saved. Stott says the Lord did two things in that verse. He added to their number those who were being saved. He didn't add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership went together, and they still do, John Stott, 2007. Can I give one more to encourage us? If God is pursuing his glory in Christ through the church forever, what that might mean for your life, join a church, be a part of a church regularly, and think about the importance of the church for your children. I think it was Norman who sent me this article. And I'm not, I probably shouldn't have mentioned his name. I don't know who it was. I have no idea who it was. I don't even, I, a lady named Mary, I can't say her last name, is a writer, a wife and a mother of three. She's a writer. Recently, she, she wrote an article saying, it seems like every time I turn around, an editor assigns me a story related to the mental health crises of our children. Most of the health experts I speak to correlate COVID and lockdowns to our children's fragile state, that closing schools played a major role in this phenomenon, but what if other crucial factors are being overlooked? Another story seemingly unrelated to the mental health crisis is making the rounds in the corporate press, and that is that church attendance is on rapid decline. There's now a democratic cafe called the nuns, and the nuns have no religious preference or affiliation. The nuns are saying we're fine without church and worship and religious instruction, but they're not fine. The children are not coping and managing day-to-day stresses and inconveniences thrown at them. They're increasingly fragile. Now, the nuns will tell you it's because we need to embrace children's differences and preferences, like their pronouns, while empowering them with positive affirmations and encouraging personal acceptance through self-esteem workshops. We clutter their, their calendar with sports and theater and STEM clubs and dance lessons, and if none of that pans out, They can medicate, self-medicate on social media. Parents will do all of this, but they won't take their families to church. And when surveyed, parents often responded that children and teens don't want to attend worship. The democratic approach to family decision-making only seems to apply to church attendance, however. For other important decisions, like wearing a seatbelt or going to school or eating your vegetables, parents balk at giving their children voting privileges. I don't know if this is true, but the author, she's saying a child's vote carries more weight when it aligns with a parent's desire to stay home in pajamas on Sunday morning. In 2018 study, Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health found some surprising benefits to children and adolescents who worship. 2018 Harvard study. They found that children and teens who attend church grow up to be young adults with higher rates of reported happiness and satisfaction. They're less likely to suffer from anxiety. Depression, less likely to use illicit drugs, less likely to engage in early sex and contract STDs. Now we think we combat all this negativity of our children by saying, you're perfect, you're awesome, keep being you. We put these platitudes on t-shirts and backpacks and stickers with unicorns and rainbows. And at the end of a bad day, our kids know there's no substitute for the real deal. They still had a bad day. Each of us knows these sentiments are superficial. We are poor, miserable sinners in need of forgiveness. So where do we go with all of our baggage when the church is not an option? We go to therapists and pharmacists, but trends show the last place parents want to go is the actual place offering a solution. What if families found a solution at church with their kids they couldn't find another place? Hopefully something that's lacking in the world around them, the truth about who God is and how they're made and what they're made for. Now, this mom writes in this article, this journalist, Newsflash, kids, you're not perfect. You know that mean thing you did to your classmate in the cafeteria? That was sin. That nasty thought you had about the person? That was sin. The snide comment you made to your mom when you were hangry? Yep, you're starting to see a pattern. But the good news is this. You've come to the right place. Jesus Christ came for sinners. And the church is full of them. And every week you hear a message that God loves you more than your sin. That Jesus died for those sins. We confess. We start with a clean slate every day, every moment of every day. Will I mess up again on Monday? Yes. But that's why we look forward to church. Can we try harder to be better people? Yes. Does our forgiveness depend on what we do? No. You're forgiven because God loves you that much that he sent his son to take the punishment that should have been yours and mine and place you in a body so that every week you're reminded of that. Every week. So imagine what a burden could be lifted from our children if they had a place to go each week that offered them that grace. How much more resilient could our children become to know if there's a God who loved them, who sent his son to die for them? Parents, we put our children as a disadvantage when we don't give them the very thing they need for their mental and spiritual health. It's time to put a new priority on the family calendar every Sunday. If we don't do it for ourselves, do it for our children. The next generation attends depends on it. Take your children to church. Now, I don't know if you agree with everything in that article. I'm not sure that I do, but I do know that your children need to see God's glory displayed. Psalm 77 and 78, and the chief place God promises to display his glory is among his people. Now, maybe you disagree at various levels. I might, too, if I go back and think about what those three applications I made. So let me come back to the main thing. What's God doing in the world, brothers and sisters? God is pursuing his own glory in Christ, through the church, forever. How should that affect your life, whether you agree with what I said or not? What implication? You're a teenager. Don't cop out. This is for you, too. All right. Back when we started, Danny Brooks preached a final message. He was the pastor at Heritage Bible Church, and he said, why do you go to the mountains He said, I go hike in the mountains because there's beauty and grandeur there you won't see anywhere else. You know what Ephesians says? You know, I should be part of a church because there's God's glory there like nowhere else.